Office Hours Live is brought to you by Arroya, the ultimate cultivation platform. Unlock the power of crop steering through our state-of-the-art sensors and software. Repeat successful runs and scale faster than ever before. Schedule a demo today at Arroya.io. <laughs> Sorry. Hello, and uh, welcome to Arroya Office Hours today. Um, I'm Scott, uh, and this is Jason here with me. And... Um, we are ready to get started. So, um, uh, and thanks also to the people who participated uh, last week and who have shown up this week. Um, happy to talk to you about a bunch of uh, of things. And <clears throat> the uh, earlier this week, we were actually down in California visiting some growers, and as we talked to them, we told them that we were going to be doing this, and they were interested in joining us. And also, it was um, a chance for us to learn the places uh, or the ways in which the system was working well and not working well for them. So um, a lot of cool stuff to, uh, to discuss. Um, so just uh, to get started, um, there are uh, a few things on my, um, on my agenda that, that, uh, that I wanted to start off talking about. One of the things that we saw when we went to the accounts was um, people, almost everybody we visit either uses um, cocoa, uh, so cocoa coir, or they use, are they're growing in rock wool, or they are growing in um, a peat moss and perlite mix. And so uh, um, just to start off with, um, you know, how different are your growing strategies going to be and uh, how different is the data that you're going to see on Arroya, um, Jason, in your opinion, growing in those different substrates? It's a great question. Um, probably two of the topics that I like to think about when we're working with different medias would be cation exchange capacity. So CEC, that's going to basically be how much the anions or cations are held into the substrate. Um, Things like rock wool have a very, very low CEC. So if there's adjustments made in your feed EC, you'll see the substrate be very reactive to those changes. It'll happen very quickly. Um, something like cocoa would be in the middle where it's slightly buffered. Um, changes are gonna happen a little bit slower. And then anything that's uh, more on the organic side typically has the highest CEC of those. Other uh, things that I like to consider would be the matrix potential uh, curves when we're looking at those different medias. So Rockwell itself uh, has a fairly linear matrix potential curve, and we can go to extremely low water contents between or before there's significant stressors put on that root. So for anyone that's not familiar with matrix potential, it's the vacuum that has to be applied to a substrate in order to pull water out of it. Yep. It's measured in KPA, typically a negative number. The more negative, more negative it is, the more vacuum that's being applied to that substrate. So when we look at that uh, <coughs> matrix potential, things like cocoa are going to hang on a little bit more, so it's slightly more, more curved. As we do get into the lower water contents, that plant has to significantly increase the amount of vacuum being applied to the substrate in order to get water out of it. Mm -hmm. And then again, on the far end of the spectrum, organic substrates. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Now, um, one of the things that I see, um, so if I if uh, I pull up my data from my little tent here, so let's see if I can do that. Yeah, there we go. Um, in my garage, and let's go on. 
sorry, wrong one. <laughs> Still learning. Um, so uh, if I pull up that data here and look at it, um, you know, I'm I'm using a, a stonewall substrate, and it is reacting pretty quickly to to um, when I feed it uh, with water, and then it's drying back um, more quickly. So, you know, I'm I'm doing these drybacks, um, and this might be I don't know what a, what a big dryback here would look like, but I'm at 48 percent. Actually, um, pro tip here, you can actually measure your dryback. So you start with uh, when you stop watering here and then go all the way to the end of the dryback. So here I was getting a 20%, you know, 21% dryback, and then you can log it in the, the platform there. Um, is that a typical um, dryback size that you might see for a, a stonewall uh, substrate? Yeah, absolutely. So a couple things to take in consideration would be, one, the size of the plants, the age of that plant. Obviously, that's going to change how much of that root zone is enveloped in, in roots and active uh, water being taken away from that substrate. Okay. And then another would be to kind of think about what's, what's our steering, what's our desired steering pattern going on. So yep. in something like rock wool slabs where you've got a fairly large uh, amount of water reservoir, something like a 20% would be right on the edge between vegetative and generative steering. Yep, yep. And what... <clears throat> I've seen in our quick start guide that you would expect to see from coir, uh, from coca coir, less dryback in percentage terms. But still, you know, even with a, a lower dryback, you would expect to see um, even, it, you know, you would still expect to see those EC spikes, right? Yes, ab absolutely. So, you know, coir, we, we talked about the matrix potential curve being uh, a little bit more aggressive. So we'll get into, the, you know, hundreds or, or maybe thousands of negative KPA when we're in that 20, 25% range. And that's definitely going to begin inducing some type of, you know, a small amount of irrigation stress on the plant. So mm -hmm. typically in, in something like cocoa, we'll actually keep uh, up above some of those numbers and reduce our drybacks when steering just a slight bit mm -hmm. over rock wool. Yeah. Um, and what about peat perlite? Um, what, what would you expect to see in terms of dryback size and its effect on osmotic potential? Um, which is, uh, and osmotic, uh, I like how you ex explained the matrix piece. The matrix is like the physical suction. The osmotic potential has to do with the saltiness, essentially, like the concentration of nutrients and keeping nutrients, um, you know, and stressing the plant with salts, essentially, instead of stressing it with, uh, with that suction like you might have in soil. How does the um, the the peat moss perlite mix perform relative to those other substrates um, when we irrigate it. Yeah, great question. And again, we're going to start off with some caveats there. Uh, organic substrates like that, you know, maybe a, a peat uh, a peat moss perlite kind of mix uh, or vermiculite would be a lot. It's gonna it's gonna have less water holding capacity overall. So when we think of of rock wool. Uh, you know, if we've got five gallons of rock wool, we could have a pretty significant amount of water in there, you know, maybe four and a half gallons, right? And when we're looking at something like those organics, uh, typically your particles are going to be a little bit smaller and your total irrigation holding capacity in that substrate is going to be less. So a lot of times we'll see people in a larger media when they're using that type of, or larger volume um, of media when they're using organics, you know, maybe a peat moss or perlite mix. And yeah. that's definitely going to 
also impact what you're seeing with your drybacks, right? Yeah. So that's uh, <clears throat> another question that I've had for a long time. As we look at, at uh, you know, if we look here at, uh, at these uh, curves here, and by the way, we talked about last week a basic problem I have with sensor placement. And if we, if we, if we break these out, there's a couple sensors here that are giving us bad data, which I intend to fix. Um, but, uh, you know, when we look at the dryback that we're achieving and what's happening with the substrate, one thing that we see is, um, you know, we've seen customers with volumes that are too small and then volumes that are too large to do uh, drybacks and uh, generative steering successfully. So what are some ranges of volumes that you think work well uh, for the different types of substrates uh, for, for crop steering? And, and where's that danger zone, like where, where you might be too small? you know, not have uh, a, a big enough volume to support the, the uh, root mass or where it's too big. And so with the plant using all the water that it can from the substrate, you're just not going to get a dry back over a, you know, over a 22 hour period. Exactly. And so let's talk maybe on the small side. Um, some growers, if they've got tiered systems and they maybe they're running a little bit smaller or shorter plants, uh, every once in a while they get away with a six by six uh, by six. Hugo yep. block. Yep. Uh, if they do end up growing significantly larger plants in that six by six, we'll see that water content drop quite a bit lower than preferable when steering generatively, simply because the amount of volume in that substrate of water is not enough to run 22 hour uh, dryback windows. And what would you call a, you know, like, a, and we've seen those blocks a lot, and it used to be a little bit more popular than it is these days to grow in that six by six by six uh, Hugo block. What, what's maybe a plant height that would get it, that would overwhelm the blocks capacity to support a good a good plant like three feet three feet okay. three and a half feet yep. okay. um, typically if you're getting into that four or five plus size plant it's going to be having a significant amount of photosynthetic action going on definitely pulling more water than that block can hold and uh, and stay in this saturation or the water content ranges that we want to see okay sure yeah yeah and what about too big like um what are what are some setups you've seen when people have too much volume uh, to deal with yeah so for um for rockwell we'll stick with that real quick obviously slabs unislabs are, are some of our favorites running typically three plants on the slab if you're going really big plants maybe two plants on the slab um typically any more than that is is going to be unnecessary and probably just uh not the best use of your substrate as a resource and input cost. Yep. For something like cocoa, uh, a lot of times we'll see, you know, one, one and a half, two gallons as the ideal range for yep. hydroponic steering. That is obviously people, if they're uh, still hand watering or they don't have great control on their irrigation systems, they can up that a little bit more to, uh, to help the, the capacity of, of how often they irrigate. Yeah. Uh, something like a five gallon, of cocoa is usually going to be more than uh, ideal for crop steering in an indoor environment. Well, and I, <clears throat> that's where I see with those larger volumes and people doing hand watering, they're giving away some precision and yield just for the sake of trying to deal with the fact that they have to walk around and hand water their plants, you know, and that might be a good trade-off. Um, and so a bigger volume would be more forgiving. Um, you know, if that doesn't get done at the right time or whatever, there's still water for the plant to take up. But what you're losing is the performance of the plant, in my opinion. Is that, what, what do you think about that? Yes, yes, absolutely. Because, you know, when we are 
using osmotic pressure and watching drybacks to crop steer if there's not enough dynamics in there we're not necessarily exercising the plant mm -hmm. and you'll see a little bit of root stagnation if that water content is too high for too long another thing to kind of keep in mind working on those larger substrates is you're going to have an increased gradient in the water content itself right so typically um, when we think about how that water permeates in the substrate for in a five gallon cocoa for example we can think of cones a little bit of overlapping cones with the or funnels and that the the point of that funnel would be where your drippers are at sure, right sure. so you've got some amount of overlap where that that saturation um, that capillary effect is is feeling moisture from both drippers and so in something like a five gallon the gradient's going to be quite a bit larger yeah. over something that that's going to stay consistent like uh you know, maybe rock, rock wool has got extremely good capillary effect and uh, compounding in that using some of the sensor technology. So Terros 12 we use is rated at a one liter volume of influence. And that volume of influence is basically saying, hey, this is the sample of substrate that it's able to measure through. So yep. Yep. In, a, in a really large media, that sensor is not going to necessarily give you a great scope of the gradient in that substrate and it's going to be a little bit more difficult to attribute the entire pot size with that one liter sample size i see i see okay and that's <clears throat> so so that's uh and we do have a question from uh, john on this uh on the chat about um sensor um density and getting a representative sample so we do want to get to that in just a in just a minute um but uh I see Brandon on. A quick shout out to Brandon. Um, I visited him and Ramon earlier this week. Uh, they have an awesome facility down at uh, at High Season, and um, they're in a two. I think um, you know they're in a larger um, volume um, substrate. And what we talked about doing was maybe um, trying uh, an approach where. Um, where they water heavily on one day. So if in the generative phase, they water heavily on one day, get that water content up in, in, uh, uh, for the substrate. But then if the, the uh, client has a larger volume, then you might let it dry back over two days. But on that second day, hit it with a little, um, with, with some water to make sure that the plant still thinks it's getting watered, but then try and take a dry back over a two-day period. Is that, is that crazy or do you think that... Um, has some, some uh, because by doing that over two days, you can get that higher EC to get the plant the stress to to turn it more generative. What are your thoughts, Jason? Uh, so my thoughts are, yeah, I, mean, I like to irrigate every day if possible, and when we do see the need to run the dry back over two or three days, that's usually a an easy indicator that maybe the substrate's a little bit too large for sure. what those roots can. Uh, can envelop well and so what would you say um you know because like talking with brandon for example they were uh you know that's what they're growing in today you know so uh so what should they do what should they do today should they try and get a little bit more dry back over a couple of days if if they are in a larger volume um not to not water on that day one water like normal day two just not not water as much and trying uh, you would always want to water i've heard okay you always want to give the plant something but then just keep that dry back going over over a couple of days yeah that's probably a, a good mitigated approach um definitely you know by irrigating 
on a daily basis, you're stimulating plant growth. Yeah. It's got a response every time that you irrigate. I mean, I've seen massive outdoor plants in these huge pots. And I'm, you know, even if the plants are huge, they're just not going to get a dryback over a, you know, say a 10-gallon substrate. You, you will not get a dryback over a day uh, in, a, in a pot that size. So just something that, that, we, uh, that we discussed. Um, Scott so, and Jason, shall I, shall I pose uh, John's question? And, and by the way, for oh, all sorry. of our attendees out there, yeah, if, if you, anyone out there who's on a call today, please feel free to write your questions, any questions you have in our chat. Um, so John wants to know, what's your general view on sensor density in the grow room? How do you know when there's enough? And can you have too many? <laughs> well, <laughs> I think you can have too many if you... Um, if you are spending too much money on sensors. And look, we're a sensor company, so for sure, um, uh, for sure, um, we love selling people sensors. But typically the problem there is cost, like how much are you going to, um, uh, to pay to have those sensors? And the other thing, uh, the two things regarding getting a representative sample is first and foremost, use the, the sensor installation tool. Um, the, the installation guide that we have and it actually shows you where on each time you put it into the block where you should put that sensor. That's the first thing is getting consistency in how you place the sensor in the growth medium. And then the second is trying to get a representative sample on which plants you actually um, put the sensor in. The other thing to be aware of if you are using a slab is to put that sensor in the, um, the, uh, the right location in the slab which is uh, if you have three plants, the right location for the sensor is on the downhill side of the slab um, in between that bottom plant and that middle plant. Is that right, Jason? That's what we find successful. Okay. So that's the very first thing is sensor placement. And Philip texted me and told me that I was totally wrong about uh, about Brandon. Now I remember it was actually a different customer who's using Coco. Um, yeah, but... Uh, uh, so I apologize, Brandon. But uh, Jason has some thoughts to share on um, on uh, sensor density because he's really looked at this question a lot. Yeah, and I think we recently posted a YouTube video talking about uh, sensor density with some good graphics explaining variation and, and how that can affect the number of sensors you need for a representative sample. Uh, some of those variation factors that we like to think about is how consistent the environment is. Uh, across all of those plants. Uh, do you have any issues uh, irrigating? So are you clogged drippers, that type of stuff? And, and then the other variation factors could be things like light uniformity, cloning consistency, defoliation consistency, other types of processing consistencies, and then uh, localized pest pressures. So when we think about any type of biological population, it follows a normalized curve. If there's enough samples or enough participants in that population. So when we think about an example installation of Arroyo in a, say, 1,200 or 1,000 square foot room, we like to have, uh, at a minimum, one sensor per 100 square foot of canopy. And that's going to just help mitigate any of those variation factors that we talked about and get you a normalized curve that we can talk about, hey, this is our average or our expected plant weight, plant quality, and here's the type of standard deviation that we see in that population. Anytime that uh, other factors get involved, like having 
um, number of strains that might behave differently, it is great to increase that sensor density so that you can represent each of those genetic populations. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, um, and that that's uh, that gets back to something we were talking about last week, which is that um, in order to get good use out of the data in the platform to do things like crop steering, uh, many uh, sites need to have gotten rid of the, the variability and the inconsistency in environment, for example, or in irrigation, um, you know, dripper to dripper variances. If, if there's huge changes in one corner of the room versus the other corner or one plant versus, you know, the two drippers that are in one plant versus two drippers in another one, this is something that's going to make it very hard to get a representative sample, no matter how many sensors you have. So, um, so that's a theme that we come back to is, you know, get, getting variability out of your, uh, as much variability as possible out of the facility itself, and then using the data, getting a representative sample and, and doing things like crop steering. Yeah, we want to steer those plants as best as possible for the most plants possible. And if our sensors on a, a plant that's growing significantly better or significantly worse than uh, the, the desired result, then you may not be steering in the right direction. I've heard from uh, a good number of clients that maybe when they only had one sensor in a room uh, of a different brand that uh, the plant with the sensor grew fantastic up to their expectations and, and there was issues across the rest of the room. <laughs> okay, yeah, it's getting a little bit of negative uh, bias there from the, uh, 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 like the watch pot never boils type thing, I guess. Um, so um, let's see. Uh, so we yeah, actually have another question um, submitted before our before the session, also about sensors. This is kind of related. Um, this person uh, wrote, I set up the sensors and I'm trying to interpret my, my data. How do I make my data actionable and how do I get the most out of what I measure? Well, that's something that we're constantly working on is, is how to, to make the, the data more useful. The very first thing in making your data useful is to start at the quick start guide and look at the general recommendations that we have in there in terms of like, am I watering the appropriate number of times for the phase of growth that I'm in with the plant? Am I, um, am I um, taking readings that could help me to, um, to have a better data set? Things like uh, the internodal distance, the stem diameter, and the plant height. I mean, some of those things you only need at certain phases of growth and at other times it doesn't really matter. So you can drop those things into tasks and have the um, your team of grow techs actually capturing that data and putting it in the system. Um, and then, you know, uh, in the quick start guide, it also talks about recommended dryback uh, percentages that you might want to hit in generative and vegetative phases. And so it's simple just to look at your data to measure your drybacks in whatever phase you're intending you know, you, you have a statement of intent. I'm in the vegetative phase, so I want to steer these plants vegetative. Correlate that with the quick start guide and say, am I actually doing what I intend to do in this phase of growth? And if I'm not, how could I change that? You know, if, if, the, if the dryback is too large and the time in between the end of the watering and the first watering on the next day is too long uh, to support vegetative growth, then I need to add more feedings in and take that longer through the day and maybe increase um, increase that frequency to the point that I only get a 10% dryback in, in veg. Um, so that's one way to start looking at the and, um, and 
taking action based on the data is um, compare what you're seeing in your graphs with uh, what's in the quick start guide to make sure that what you're intending to do is what is actually happening with the plant. What are your thoughts on, on uh, other things people should be doing, Jason? Yeah, you're exactly right on uh, those, those topics. Attributing your data is a great step to understanding what's going on in there. And then I also like to use harvest groups, um, basically building out a recipe so that the graph has other characters that indicate what's going on. So something like a light schedule is a great way to see if your lights are, are turning on and off when you expect them to. If it follows the shaded region in the, the background, then you know that uh, it's running as expected. So yeah, there's a lighting schedule, right? So exactly. these shaded areas is when I intend to have my lights on, this is actually my, uh, my um, light intensity. Let me actually get to DLI here, which I want more than I want my light intensity. Yeah, so here's my DLI um, with a quantum sensor. Um, and so you can see that the photons getting added during the, uh, the time when the lights are on. Yep, and other things in the harvest group that I find very helpful too give the data more meaning, talking about timelines. So if we break our recipe into, say, rooting in, dry down, generative, vegetative, and harvest, or ripening and then harvest, it, we can understand our patterns meeting the objectives of that phase. And then the, the last thing that's really nice about recipes is looking at your target and alert ranges. So when we characterize that, that green box, it's pretty easy to communicate with people on site, staff members, that the data, say humidity is, is accurate, it's within the ranges that we want, temperatures mm -hmm. in the ranges that we want, water contents, you know, high and low aren't drying back further than we'd like. And then obviously those alerts can start to, to give you information if you get too far out of bounds. Yeah. And it, it kind of, you know, that, that word actionable that, that, uh, that um, Keisha just mentioned is, is I think, the critical piece. Like, how, how do we make it uh, useful for our customers? And to me, that's, um, that has to do with those things that you mentioned, actually making a statement of intent. So the statement of intent is the recipe, in my opinion. It's like, well, what do you intend to do with this product? Well, I intend for it to have seven phases of growth. And in each phase of growth, this is where I want to keep the different parameters that I'm measuring, and these are the tasks that I want to have done. And if you split those up into into kind of mental, you know, mental groups, there's the the uh, atmospheric stuff, so VPD, temperature, um, light. There's the substrate stuff, which is mainly around crop steering and what, how the roots are doing. There's plant touching tasks, things like deleafing. I mean, the plants can be super happy, can be doing great, but if you don't deleaf properly, you're gonna have a smaller bud. Uh, lower down on the stem. You know, it's not as much um, grade A bud because the size is not as big. It also hurts your yield. So the, the deleafing is essentially taking away those light catching pads, those, you know, the, the photon surfaces to, to put those photons more effectively on places that are going to increase your yield. And then the fourth one is IPM. And they all have to do with each other. They're all interrelated. But I like what you said about the recipe because that's the way to take that statement of intent, apply it to that harvest group that you're growing, and then keep track of it to make sure that all those things, the atmosphere, the substrate, the IPM, and, um, and the uh, plant touching tasks are all happening when they should and all happening in the right way. And if it gets off, off track, that's the actionable piece, how to get it back on track. 
Exactly. Great example of an actionable insight would be saying, uh, when we go into that, you know, a ripening phase towards the end that we're adjusting our environment so they can build a task that always happens on the first day of ripening to change the irrigate or the, uh, the climate controls, right, right? Right. And if we've got our target parameters set well and the alert parameters set well, if someone doesn't get that task done, it's likely that an alert will go out the day after that, indicating that the changes in the environment weren't made as as um, as prescribed by their recipe. Yep. Yep. And that means thousands of dollars. You know, if you're driving your humidities too high in ripening, you run the chance of having mold in the product. You know, actually getting a uh, a, a mold issue that then destroys a lot of value when you try and take that to market. Maybe you have to blow it out to extract or whatever. Um, the So that's the case where um, the alerts can um, make sure that you're doing the right thing to keep everything that you've done up to that point in cultivation. You know, very, very valuable plants at that point. Lots of labor and uh, resources invested in them, getting them to the very end. They're ready to, to sell and you've accomplished your, your goal as a grower. Um, okay, Keisha, what, what else um, you've got? Yeah, I've got another one uh, sent to us before our session today. And uh, to everyone out there, if you have any questions, we want to get them answered. So be sure to add them to the chat. Um, someone wrote to us, I'm in charge of several new grow rooms with a few strains in each. Our last few harvests didn't go as well as we'd hoped, even though the rooms and plants look great. What types of variables am I missing? Are there any sensors that might help me deduce what the problem is for next time? Yeah, I mean, uh, there's there's lots and lots of different things to look at. The the one interesting part of this question to me was that um, they're saying that they have multiple strains in a in a single room. So let's start with that one, Jason. Is that raising red flags for you? Yes, uh, you know it can be a challenge when we're running multiple cultivars, different types of strains in a room, simply because the genetic differences have growth behavior that prefers different irrigation schedules at different times and probably even different environments. And I think one of the most valuable things that can be done, because obviously there's typically sales pressure, um, there's market pressure to have a good, uh, good variety of, of strains on the shelf. And so a lot of times, you know, it's not necessarily a reality to say, uh, you know, monocrop is, is possible at our facility. If you've got, say, you know, five rooms at a facility, that would mean you only get uh, five types of strains you know, at, at any given time, obviously you can overlap those. Uh, but what I was getting to is if you can document strain per zone, then you can get to an, an idea of how that plant behaved for that grow cycle. So we've got that, that um, statement of intent and maybe there's a cultivar in the room that needs a little bit different parameters for that recipe. So by documenting all of that to the harvest group record, you can get an idea of what types of plants grow well together and start to plan your rooms out with, with similar genetic behavior. And I think it, it might depend, if you have a sophisticated enough uh, facility that you could run a different um, irrigation um, a strategy per, per zone, um, you know, th that might, get, might make it easier to have multiple strains in a single room. Uh, some people don't have that capability though. So, so uh, I think that compatibility within strains, picking strains that, that um, like to be treated in a similar way is critical as a first step. Um, and then the, the second step is, um, to me, is going back through that data, like Jason said, writing all the data to the harvest group record, and then going back through that and looking at 
you know, um, how much uh, on each day of a particular period um, uh, phase of growth, what did you intend to achieve and did you actually achieve it? Um, and uh, what, how can, how can uh, clients, um, you know, analyze the data and get an answer to that question, Jason, do you think, by using the, the cultivation data? Yeah, so obviously with any choices, the, the more resources, the more information you have to, to get to the right choice is what you want. So after you've grown uh, a number of cycles, say in a, a mixed cultivar room, take a look at uh, the results of that. Did your blue dream grow really well one round? Did your wedding cake grow re really well one round? Did you know three out of the strain, three or four um, out of five strains in the room grow well? And then look at the, the parameters on that and start to say, all right, we know that this type of plant prefers a, an eight-week cycle versus a seven-week cycle, or it prefers a little bit higher temperature in the room simply because of the how the evolution of that strains come along. Sure, sure. Yeah, I, I would look for those differences. Um, and uh, one thing that also comes up, and this is this would probably be a little bit more obvious is the IPM side of things. And uh, for example, on the West Coast right now, there's a lot of uh, concern about hoplite and viroid, and that maybe some lack of vigor in plants is because of expression of that, uh, of uh, the virus, of, of uh, 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 potential exposure to, to plant viruses. Do you think that might um, explain some of the lack of vigor? Would that be a more extreme case where you'd see some plants that are doing really well and some plants that uh, that are expressing the uh, virus being super short? Yeah, that's that's a, a rough one these days with uh, hoplite. Uh, it affects different strains and different plants to a significant degree. Some some growths you can't even tell necessarily by the plant that, that it is infected. Um, obviously lab samples are gonna be one of the key tools to avoid that um, at your facility. Make sure, sure that you're getting that stuff checked. And then obviously if you do have duds, as a lot of people call it, then it could be a, an absolute indicator that that plant has uh, some type of infection. I mean, the, the places that I've seen it before are just, uh, are, um, there's there's a big discrepancy it's not all i mean i get i've never seen a facility where all the plants are affected by it. it's like a discrepancy between some plants expressing and some not um, but but maybe other people have seen other stuff out there happy to have comments or thoughts on that from from anybody who's on i've got another uh question this is a little bit more general how quick does it take to get arroyo set up and running yeah um <laughs> that's a great question um, and what we've found is that, uh, in a, you know, in a large, well, in a, in a small to medium sized facility, you should be up and running within, um, you know, hours. Um, you should, because basically what it involves is, um, is we already set up your rooms and your zones for you. So as the client, what you do is you unpack the, the sensors out of the box. You decide where you want to install them. You use a mobile app to scan the QR code on the sensor. Tell us where you're installing it, what room and what zone, and then plug it into the plant. And um, you know you do have to set up your, uh, there's a, a gateway and there's repeaters, but those are um, power over ethernet. Um, there's the climate stations as well, they're power over ethernet. So um, 
you know, you might be able to, to install a couple of sensors in a zone in five minutes. Um, so really, you should be able to do a pretty large facility in less than a day and already be collecting data. Is that right, Jason? That's my experience. We've spent a lot of energy during our, our research times trying to understand great ways that we can help people get this stuff set up. Sensor systems traditionally aren't necessarily easy. Uh, a lot of times there's complexities as far as maybe programming or um, understanding serial numbers. And that's one of the things with that uh, QR code that's nice and fast. Just give it a scan, tell us where it's at, and that data is going to start piping to the record in the interface. Yeah. Yeah, and that's that's what I experienced in <clears throat> when I set uh, my my tent up at home. I had three sensors. I had a climate station. I had a uh, no repeaters, but I had a gateway, and um, everything worked the way that that I thought it should. I plugged in the the gateway, and it powered up and started blinking. Um, I pushed the buttons on the uh, the sensors to w to wake them up, um, and then uh, assign them to zones using my phone. And the whole thing to set up in my little tent took maybe 15 minutes. So it was a really efficient, uh, simple process. Um, and, uh, you know, the, uh, we do want to make sure that, um, that clients are not just setting up the sensors, but then also setting up their plants in the system. And we talked about that before, which is, you know, coming in here um, on, the, um, uh, on the interface and once you get your plants, or once you get your sensors set up, sure, you can just go and look at the, the place where they're installed, which is this, uh, this little 4x4 tent, and you'll see a, a similar data stream. Um, but we, what we also want is for users to come in here to production, uh, set up your recipes, which is a basic description of how you want to grow. And I made a, a basic one right here. Uh, which is your, as we talked about, this is your statement of intent. Once you have a recipe, we'd like you to come in here and create your harvest group and decide where those activities are going to happen, the different phases, um, name it however you want, and then start adding uh, the cultivar or cultivars to it um, that are, uh, that you're going to be growing. And by doing this, you create harvest groups. And that's what Jason was talking about before and Keisha's question about actionable um, insights is that once you get those set up, you can actually come down here and learn and learn how each of the cultivars that you're growing is actually doing. Um, you know, this is just an overview of the cultivar. If I go in here and click on this uh, strain run or this cultivar within a strain run, I can see a summary of all the data, everything that I've done to those plants. As we talked about, these data traces are pretty rough. Um, but uh, everything that's happened to these plants within the context of them as a as a uh, harvest group, instead of just being um, unlabeled data from a room somewhere and looking historically everything that's happened in that room. Um, and then that also adds up to facility performance as well, which we which we talked about too. So so it, getting it set up is, is a really quick process. And like Jason uh, said, we've worked hard on making it simple. We want to make this uh, immediately valuable for people. We used to have, you know, data loggers and cables strung all over the place. And uh, a lot of people um, don't uh, appreciate until they actually install that everything being on a wireless um, sensor, on a wireless Bluetooth mesh network, with a solar panel and a battery uh, plugged into the sensor, it just makes it so easy. You can install them, get them set up quickly, 
once it's time to flip the room, you pull all the sensors out. You Some people make little racks for the side of the room where you hang them up. You know, they, they have these little places for array to live when they're flipping a room. And then they put the new plants in and they and they put the sensors back in. It's all very simple. Yep. Uh, it's maintenance on these things is pretty low. No batteries to replace. The wireless nose has a solar panel that's designed to keep them well charged up, even in very low light conditions. Uh, they'll go 100 plus days with no light at all. So typically at the beginning of the cycle, those things get fully charged up. And if you've got a really thick canopy, they'll always make it through the grow cycle. And uh, another thing when you're flipping the room, it's, it's not a bad practice to clean the prongs of the sensors, uh, yep. depending on what types of chemicals you're using on there. Sometimes you'll see a little bit of uh, residual buildup on those prongs. Uh, it's a good approach just to have you know a clean sterile room anyways and since that thing's right in the substrate it's a great approach we recommend some isopropanol with a wipe down yep yep uh great from an ipm standpoint make sure everything is clean as possible um so we do have a uh sorry um keisha yeah we have a question from mandy can you explain the kiosk feature and how do i find it in my arroya app and how do i use it Okay, we'll do the best that we possibly can here, um, Mandy, because we don't have a, um, a, an iPad plugged into our system today. Um, but maybe, um, I don't know, I think I see Philip on the call. Maybe he can send me some screenshots um, of the, uh, of the uh, kiosk app because this is a new feature. Uh, what Mandy is referring to um, is a... Um, is a new feature in the uh, in Arroya that allows you to have a special view of all your data and stuff that you need to get done on an iPad or an Android tablet. So it's specifically for the tablet. Actually, Jason has it here. Um, how can we link up with your computer, Jason? I could share it on the Gchat. Oh, yeah, go, go for and it. And that Do should that. give us a chance. All right, this is uh, kind of a visual. Is it sharing yet? Well, I think, uh, so that's a... You won't see it there. Okay. Okay. Perfect, yeah, great. great. Yep. So y'all are looking at uh, just a great example of the kiosk. This is the, the main dashboard. The intent of it is to be used on a tablet, a lot of times either uh, belonging to uh, building manager, room manager, or just mounted outside of the room. This is a heads-up display giving us the most recent readings of air temp, relative humidity, pressure deficit, light, substrate temperature, electrical connectivity, and water content. A couple cool things going on here is we can see the ranges that are set for each of these types, and that's just a little dark um, shaded area on the gauge, and then we can see where at in that range we are indicated by that circle icon. If we check out the VPD up in the top right, we can see it's all, all filled in bright red. This is indicating that the room is outside of the intended range. In this case, we can see the dot is just above where we'd like our VPD to be at. So 1.9 is, is definitely higher than we'd prefer in the room at that time. Gives you, gives you a quick, quick idea of what's going on in there. Uh, a lot of people can replace their hygrometers that they're so accustomed to looking at while they're in the room. On the left side, we've got some information about the harvest group. We've got the 
cultivars in the room and we can look at specific cultivars. So if I wanted to check out the data referencing only lava cake, we can see it's in zones three and four here. And we'll notice that the EC water content and substrate temperature have slightly changed simply because we're omitting certain sensors in the room. We're only looking at the sensors in the lava cake. So by describing those harvest groups, what plants are where in the room, it makes it uh, a little bit easier to see if they're behaving different even on the day-to-day. -day. A couple other options in here is going to be looking at the graph data itself. If we click on one of these icons, it'll bring up uh, the traditional mobile time series view portal. And that is, that is hot in that room. 81? Yeah, it's a little toasty. Yeah, it's not too bad. I like I like 81, depending on the plant age and what type of light sources you have. Okay, if you say so. Let's click on that VPD, and this is kind of cool because we can see here's our max and min target ranges, and then obviously on the, the left side is the condition that we're at right now. So um, obviously they're about 8 a.m., our VPD started going up higher than we wanted. And then at 8 p.m. it was lower than we wanted. So we're having a hard time with some of the HVAC stuff in this room, keeping the, that VPD where we want. A couple other features in here. So if we check out the little clipboard looking icon with the check mark, this is indicating what tasks are in the room. And if we, uh, if we log in with our, our pin code, that'll actually allow me to see my tasks, start tasks, grab a task that's not been assigned for a room, can time those, take a break on them, and then complete them when I'm done. Yeah, and that's <clears throat> really excited about that. The login feature, the very first time you log in, you will have to log in with your password, but thereafter you, uh, we've created a PIN system. So the particular uh, team member, uh, they would all use their own individual PIN to get access to the tasks. Um, note that the tasks here can be assigned either to a room. Well, you can have wildcard tasks which are assigned to nobody and to no room. Okay, and and uh, you can still go in and, and grab them in the system. If the tasks are automatically scheduled in the recipe, the room that contains those plants will be the room that shows the task on the kiosk, and so you can go and grab it there. It's not necessarily assigned to a person. If the task is assigned to a person, the person who logs in will see their task on this list and they can do it. So there's multiple ways to get tasks um, to people. Uh, this, is, this one is automatically filtering by the room where those tasks are done in and by the individual that they're assigned to. And again, you don't have to assign it to a person. But as Jason mentioned, it's really exciting to be able to have tasks here and to complete them here because when you click on them, you will start the task in the system you can pause it, like Jason said, and you will finish it in the system as well. We don't have any analytics on particular tasks yet that takes advantage of this time, but our intent is to use that uh, labor tracking tool to be able to standardize and make a, a repeated task in the system more efficient. So saying, um, you know, th this task um, should be should only take this long to complete, for example. Um, and then also be able to write that labor tracking data back to the particular cultivar on which the plant touching tasks were performed, which gives you a much better idea of how much money you're making on each strain that you're growing. So you can uh, bring that business intelligence uh, from cultivation activities actually into um, you know, operations and finance and say, hey, this is, these are the strains that we're doing really well on. These are the ones that, uh, that um, 
really costs a lot to grow. Even if they're desirable, they're so finicky that they're just taking all our time. Yeah, we've got some nice features with the tasking here as well. So uh, if you know, you're know you having an issue getting your task done, you can do a comment on there and, and tag maybe someone to help you out. And then we've got notifications based on tasking behavior as well. So if you go into your account settings and make sure that you've got the, the appropriate notifications, you can get notifications when uh, you're assigned a task. You can get a task reminder notification. So maybe uh, you have to get something done that day. It can shoot you a notification at a program time. Um, managers can get task completed notifications. So if they're sending tasks out, they can keep an eye on uh, what's getting done when without even being into the system. And then um, that comment notification as well. So uh, I think last week as we were talking, um, I was going to get you some help from Bob on deleafing. If you just type in at Bob, it'll pop up with uh, the members that fit that, that, um, that name and give, give them a quick, quick message. Yep, great. I hope we uh, Excellent. answered your question. Um, yeah, that's great. Thank you, Scott and Jason. Um, I actually have one more question. This actually came from our Instagram community. Um, to anyone out there, um, if you didn't get any questions answered today, uh, feel free to submit them at any time on Instagram or email us. Um, this person is asking, I am a small-scale tent grower that is looking to scale and grow a business in 2022. How soon would I be eligible to start using the commercial platform? And what are the prerequisites for getting started? Yeah, as of today, um, it uh, we do make a distinction on Arroyo, and the way that we started it was we said that uh, we need to know that you're a licensed grower in your state in order to to um, to use the system, and that's still where we are today. Um, the only the only caveat I would give is that um, that we are uh, have talked about internally how to make the platform more accessible for everybody who wants to use the the um, the uh, production platform to help themselves be a better grower and producer of the of the cannabis plant. And so, um, it, you know, without it, it's impossible for me to 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 um, to give all the details at this point. The only thing I can say is uh, stay tuned. What we do have for people right now is um, it's you know our quick start guide is generally available online so people can see our basic recommendations on growing and it's become really popular even with people who don't have the platform just to get that guide and and learn more about about the the uh, fundamentals of growing um, the science is also really important to us so that's something we see a lot in the industry is there's a lot of pseudoscience and kind of um, you know snake oil going around um, we started out in the environmental biophysics space. We have studied for 40 years the, um, the uh, soil plant atmosphere continuum. And so, you know, these are things that are important to us and we don't put things in our recommendations that are, um, that are just guesses, that are just, you know, um, it, you know, it would be nice if this were true or this is a, a fun new idea. Uh, what we put in our materials is the science. Um, the third thing is that even today you can get soluses, which is the heart of the Arroyo system is correct um, sensing of the substrate. And that same Terrace 12 sensor that's used on, on Arroyo in this, uh, in this software platform is also available just as a spot reading. And you can tell some really important things just by having an accurate sensor in the substrate and checking it at different times at the end of the dryback. What is my EC? You'd expect it to be... Um, in the generative phase, you expect that you see to be really high. 
Um, that's something you can learn from a solace. So the last thing I'll say is just stay tuned. Uh, we do intend to um, get this technology into people's hands um, without uh, all of the the um, uh, the commissioning and uh, setup that is typically required for large enterprise customers. Um, we're working on making that uh, available, but at the same time, we don't want to do that until it's actually ready. And uh, and it uh, we want to make it simple and easy to use and not confuse um, uh, customers as well. So um, please just stay tuned. Um, that's a great request, and, and we are working on it. Great. Thank you. Um, I have one more uh, pre broadcast question to submit. Maybe we can touch on this final few minutes. What does customer support look like and for how long do we have access to it? Yeah, uh, customer support is um, is forever. So if you're an Arroyo uh, customer uh, and you're a subscriber, um, you know, customer support is, uh, is always available to you as part of your subscription. So the answer to, um, to that second question is forever for as long as you're a customer. And, uh, maybe Jason, just, uh, give a quick overview of what it looks like when, when you have a problem with the issue or, or issue with the platform, typically how do people raise their hands and say, Hey, I need some help. And, uh, then what, how do we get back to them? Yeah, so there's a couple good ways to get a hold of us. Uh, probably my favorite way is the support submission request in the bottom left of the screen. So if you're logged into Arroyo and you're experiencing an issue, hit that question mark button, scroll down to the support form, and that's going to ask you some information about, hey, what type of support request you have, is it a bug report, uh, is it just a question, etc. And And what's nice about that is we get some information about the, the session, maybe there was some errors going on in the page before you press that button. Uh, it, it gives us some background as to what's going on there. Uh, the other way you can get a hold of us is obviously shoot us a phone call and uh, or you can always send an email to support.arroyo.io. What we do is we just process through those tickets, get people the right help from the, uh, the correct member on the team. And uh, typically it shouldn't take very long. Okay. Uh, thank you. Uh, anything else, Keisha? That was it for the questions. Just a reminder to everyone, we do this every week, but we will be taking a break next week because it's Thanksgiving. Yes, yes. Um, however, please keep keep submitting, us, submitting your questions to us. Um, what's the best email address if people want to email questions? Uh, so for sales questions, hit up sales.com arroyo at metergroup.com for support and just hit support.arroyo at metergroup.com. And uh, yeah, uh, early, but uh, hopefully um, useful. Happy Thanksgiving to everybody and looking forward to continuing the conversation. Thank you. Awesome. Yeah. Just thanks everybody for joining us today. We record every session. So we're going to email everyone in attendance a link to the video from today's discussion. It's also going to live on the Arroyo YouTube channel. So please do like and subscribe while you're there. And if you find these conversations helpful, please feel free to share the video with anyone else who um, might be able to benefit from it. I think that's it. Any final words, Scott and Jason? Nope. Thanks everyone. Bye-bye.
Office Hours Live is brought to you by Arroya, the ultimate cultivation platform. Unlock the power of crop steering through our state-of-the-art sensors and software. Repeat successful runs and scale faster than ever before. Schedule a demo today at arroya.io.